to Liberty Unlocked. I'm your host, Don Watkins. One of the challenges in advocating for liberty is that our ideas are outside the mainstream. And there's this question of, okay, well, what's our selling point? Like, why should people adopt radical ideas that will alienate them from the culture, ideas that are out of fashion, ideas that are hard to defend because they're so alien to today's debate? And this question really has two aspects. So one aspect is, what's the value of liberty? And I actually wrote an essay on that point a week or so ago called How Not to Argue for Liberty. So you can find that at my website at donswriting.com. But there's another aspect that I didn't discuss, which is, as an advocate for liberty, what is it you're really selling? Like, why are people going to consume your ideas, which are so unusual? And, you know, the answer can't be that they're true. I mean, they are true, but your ideal reader, the person you're trying to persuade, doesn't know that. The question is, what should he or she get out of reading or listening to you? And if I had to boil it down to one word, what you should be aiming for is clarity. If a person wants to live in this world, then they need to understand the world and understanding the ideas and forces that shape it. Like, there's a real value in understanding that, understanding what's good and what's evil. Like, even if they can't totally control it, all of that, knowing what is true and knowing the way the world works is just enormously valuable. And, like, so one analogy I like to use is, you know, you imagine life is walking through a dark room and you're trying to get from one side to the other. And it's just, it's really valuable to have a flashlight. And the brighter, the better. The more you can see the more clearly you can see, the better you can navigate your way around obstacles, avoid, you know, falling down holes, getting to where you want to go. And if you can provide clarity about the world people are living in, including clarity about what problems we face, clarity about the cause of those problems, clarity about the solutions, many, many people will want to consume your work. Even people who don't even fully agree with you. In effect, you're giving them this feeling at least to some extent of, whoa, now I understand, now I get it. And people love that feeling. But communicating in order to clarify is very different from most of our models of persuasion in the political world. Most of our models of persuasion are about how to dominate a debate. And so I just wanted to share with you one distinction I found very helpful for thinking about how to approach persuasion versus debates. So this is from a Twitter thread I wrote a few days ago. Lots of persuasion experts talk about framing, but they mean something different from what I do. There are two basic approaches to framing, dominance frames and cognitive frames. Dominance frames are when you establish a relationship of superiority, moral, intellectual, masculinity, etc., over your opponent. Dominance frames are mainly debating tactics. You make an opponent look weak and defensive, ideally regardless of how they respond. See, for instance, this analysis of Donald Trump, and I linked to a video from Charisma on Command on YouTube called Donald Trump's Debates, Five Mental Tricks You Didn't Notice, so you can look that up. If you find yourself in the receiving end of a dominance frame attack, your inclination is either to defend yourself or try to out-dominate the dominator. Usually this doesn't work. If you defend, you come across as defensive, and your opponent will definitely notice and exploit this. If you try to dominate, good luck. Your opponent likely has a lifetime of experience establishing and maintaining dominance. A better solution, 
as usual, the answer is right there in the wire. You can't lose if you don't play. Enter cognitive frames. With cognitive framing, you're establishing a structure for thinking about an issue. Usually that means the methods, assumptions, and goals that will guide us in making a specific choice. If you're pro-liberty, the default cognitive frame is almost always stacked against you, which is why the pro-liberty side is almost always on the defense. For an example, see Ron Paul's struggle to defend a pro-liberty position concerning healthcare, and I linked to something on YouTube. I think if you search Ron Paul healthcare presidential debate, it'll come up. Cognitive framing teaches you how to frame issues so that you are arguing for the highest good and positioning your opponent as arguing for the lowest evil. Done right, you can totally ignore dominance framing. Your focus is totally on arguing how your position will lead to the highest good and your opponents will move us towards the lowest evil. And I make a note that if you go to um, my Persuasion Mastery course, which is now all available at uh, donswriting.com slash course or courses, I always forget which one, um, you'll find it there. Uh, I go into framing in a lot of depth and I'm going to go into even more depth in the future. So that's the end of the thread. And all of that leads to my guest this week, Greg Salmieri. Greg's a philosopher and director of the Program in Objectivity and Thought, Action, and Enterprise at the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also one of the people who's most shaped my thinking over the years on philosophic issues. We delve into a lot of interesting issues, including this idea that people are motivated by understanding the world. And we also, towards the end, discuss my favorite novel and arguably the most persuasive thing ever written in defense of liberty, the book Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. And there's just a really interesting analysis of what makes it so persuasive. And I think there's a lot of lessons that we ourselves can use uh, as persuaders. A few final notes. I'm recording this on June 22nd, 2020. This Saturday, June 27th, at 4 p.m. Eastern, I'm going to be holding the first of my bi-weekly Unlocking Liberty Masterminds. And this is your chance to hear my latest thinking about persuasion, to ask me questions about literally anything, and to get personalized feedback on your work. So for details, go to donswriting.com and click Mastery in the tab. Last thing before we get to the interview, if you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is sign up for my newsletter and free Persuasion Bootcamp email course at donswriting.com. You also need to sign up for the newsletter if you want to um, get the Zoom link for the mastermind, so definitely do that. You can also support the show financially by visiting libertyunlocked.com or clicking the link in the show notes. Every dollar goes to improving the show and helping us reach as many people as possible. And a lot of you have been supporting the show, so thank you very much. Now, on to the conversation with Greg Salmieri. So thanks for doing this, Greg. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because I've done a few of these interviews. And one of the recurring themes when people who are now pro-freedom try to describe and articulate where they started out and how they got there is that they often have trouble articulating exactly how they started out with their, how they got their kind of first set of political views. And usually the explanation is something sort of vague, like, I mean, it was just sort of in the air and it's just what I thought it meant to be a good person. It's what everybody I talked to thought it meant to be a good person. And people who, you know, disagreed 
and they're usually referring to what we would you know call progressive or you know like uh, liberal policies. Um, you know, my understanding of why people would disagree is just that you know they were greedy and not they didn't really care about people. And I think on on a superficial level, you could interpret that to mean that people are not that ideas are sort of irrelevant to why a lot of people adopt political views. Um, my view is that that sort of is a really good springboard to thinking about the non-obvious ways in which ideas do impact political views. But what's, what's your kind of you know, global take on how you think most people are arriving where they are at their political opinions? I think a lot of it is social and um, who you're brought up around or what crowd you run with, what ideas you're exposed to. And I, I don't think most people think or push too deeply. Um, so I think they're, you know, I think for a lot of people, what political views you are and how you came to acquire them is like what sports team you root for and how you acquired that preference. You grew up in New York and the Yankees, everyone was for. And I think very often that's how people, they're a Democrat or they're a Republican. And then most people aren't particularly, aren't particularly vociferous about it. They just, I've always voted Republican uh, or I've always voted Democrat. And then they maybe start to get a little bit more vehement uh, either when they encounter people who are more vehement who are pushing and prodding them in that direction. Or I think even more often as a counter reaction to other people, you know, someone right. says, you know, if you vote for Trump, you're the most horrible person ever. And someone else says, if you vote for Clinton, you're the most horrible person ever. And if you were someone who was inclined to vote for Trump or Clinton, maybe you feel that's unjust to you. And, uh, and then you uh, double down and bear in, which I don't think is the right way to react to that at all. I think that's um, uh, not a rational response to someone's criticizing your choice. But nevertheless, I think a lot of it is that. Um, but I mean, there are people who think about it and go from their ideas and values. But if we're talking about the difference between most people who vote for one of the other current parties, I think that's how it happens. So one explanation for that kind of phenomenon that I hear quite often on people who now support some version of freedom is, well, you know, government control over our lives. There's something intuitively obvious about that. That's sort of like the default you know, easy to understand uh, view. And it's a much more sophisticated, abstract, you have to understand economics at a high level, like freedom is completely non-obvious. And there's something about that, there's something about that that seems right, like it takes real work to get the value of freedom. Um, but I think there's also something a little bit self-serving about that, where it's, well, I've made the perfect argument and presented the facts for everybody to understand. And you know, they're just not smart enough or not hard, uh, diligently thinking well enough to, to get it. How do, you, how do you think about that sort of uh, Yeah, I mean, what issue? it takes work to do is to get out of the conventional kind of thinking. And so if you get anybody who's at all a Republican saying that, or who's at all a Democrat saying what you just said, and I don't mean who votes for the Republicans as a lesser of two evils or the Democrats, uh, as, as a lesser of two eagles, I voted for both parties in that way, but who, you know, is ideologically aligned with them, one of the parties or the other. Um, that's where the culture's at. Everyone's a Republican or Democrat or, or, uh, or put it this way, the two parties are where they are because they reflect the broad consensus of just what people think and what's in the air and what they've been brought up with. So it, it's possible for somebody to be really thoughtful and think everything through and end up 
uh, you know, making some mistakes on either of those sides. But I think the default, if you're on in one of those positions, is that's just what you've been brought up with. And it's not if you are, I mean, the difference between Republicans and Democrats on the economy is that, you know, Republicans want two parts per trillion less taxes and two parts per trillion less regulations. It's not like they, um, or two parts per million or something. It's not like there's a big, um, a big difference. Um, the, the big difference is the personalities and what particular things they're um, in personality and what particular concerns are, are at top of mind for them. Uh, and there are valid concerns on both sides, but which ones are at top of mind? If someone has a view that's really outside the mainstream, um, they're a Marxist and not like people who pretend that Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or even Barack Obama is a Marxist because they're not, they're bad in all sorts of ways, but they're not, if you meet actual Marxists, they say very different things, right? So somebody who's a Marxist on the left or who's a um, real pro-capitalist on, uh, it's not the right because the right isn't pro-capitalist, but the whatever you'd call us who are real pro-capitalists or to take something also evil like like socialism, um, you know, someone who's a real um, white supremacist in the kind of ideological sense, like, uh, you know, um, not just who's a bit of a racist, but who, you know, wants a white ethno state or something. Um, those kind of people, there's a interesting origin story for. But if you are aligned with Fox or MSNBC or CNN, there's, you know, your origin story is probably that's where you started. That's how you grew up and that's still what you're thinking. One of the challenges I find is precisely because like if, if you're advocating something that's controversial or outside the mainstream, um, you're asking for a lot of work to consider those options. I think it's part of your point. And yet the, you know, what is the incentive that a person has beyond kind of an abstract concern for truth to like think hard about these issues and consider things that could alienate them from people? Because you can imagine, so we're both interested in Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism and agree with Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, you can kind of see the cash value of coming up, of coming to conclude that a morality outside the mainstream is worth considering and embracing because this is going to make me happier. This is going to make me successful. Um, but giving somebody an incentive to question politics where you can see as a society, it makes a life or death difference what political conclusions we reach. But it's hard for an individual, particularly at the beginning of that journey, to think, it makes a big difference for me what conclusions I reach because I have a, I'm going to have very little impact either way. And so why am I going to even bother going down this journey? And so feel free to comment on that. But even kind of a, a first step in that direction is like, why, why should an individual even bother thinking about, you know, political issues that they do have such a negligible, if any, impact on? Well, I think we have a need to understand our world, to understand why things are going and developing in the way that they are, what those mean for our possibilities in our life, even if you can't change it. And people, I think, can underest underestimate the, the impact they can have. But even if you can't change things, um, knowing what's happening, what the forces are, why they're developing in the directions that they are, is part of having the world be intelligible to you. And if you don't think about these things and don't come to understand them, you seem like you're at the grip of inexplicable forces that are beyond your control. That's why there's so much of this conspiracy theorizing going on uh, across the political spectrum right now. 
we're having a big swath of it on the right, but you get it in other places too. Um, there's the sense that something's going wrong. It's out of my control. There's some kind of mysterious logic to it, but you don't understand what that logic is. And so you kind of anthropomorphize it to, you know, people behind the scenes. Um, the, my point isn't you should think about this to avoid becoming a conspiracy theorist, but the kind of need that pushes people there, that there's a need that has to get satisfied one way or another if you're going to try to chart your course in the world, in a society, to understand what's going on in that society and to judge it. And uh, if you don't do the thinking to figure out why things are happening and what should be, you'll be disoriented and you'll grasp around for other ways to orient yourself. Are there other areas of life where you think that's a kind of core motivation where it's not necessarily like a very, you know, like I'm convinced of this idea, I'm going to take a direct action to, you know, get an outcome versus it's just helpful to understand the kind of forces that are shaping the world around me. Metaphysics, history. That's a really interesting one. Because it's always interesting to me. I mean, I, I've been interested in persuasion in the context of fundamental ideas for a long time. And when you see persuasion discussed outside of like objectivist circles or intellectual circles, it's usually about sort of business oriented things. And there's this kind of belief that people only care about basically like how to make money, how to like, you know, feel good about themselves and how to get laid. And beyond those sort of motivations, like you, you're, you know, that you're just wasting your time starting a business appealing to them. But I think it's, to me, it's very revealing that like people, many, many people get, spend a, an inordinate and I think sometimes unhealthy amount of time just thinking about and discussing political issues, thinking about and discussing like history, like we're fascinated by these things. And I think um, recognizing that that's a real motivation that can be appealed to is sort of pathbreaking to me because it was able, I was able to get some of the benefits of, you know, um, the lessons that you can learn from people who think about business marketing, but not get trapped into this very limited view of, oh, I'm writing a book on, called Free Market Revolution. I have to somehow convince people this will make them more money. Yeah, I mean, the people are motivated, I think, by wanting to understand the world. It's um, Aristotle famously, he overstates this, uh, overstates the goodness of it, but it, the metaphysics begins, all men by nature desire to know, right? And then he goes on that, even when they don't have a practical goal in mind, they value knowing. And uh, for Aristotle, he thinks there's an intrinsic value to knowing apart from life, and I think that's not true. But you don't need a specific action goal to want to know the truth. Um, if you value knowledge and you value reality, um, and you come to recognize that as Bacon thought, knowledge is power in general. It'll help your life some way. You don't need to know a particular cash value for each conclusion. Um, people want to know, and it's worth knowing. It's valuable to know, and in particular, to know the kind of things that orient you in the world and help you understand it uh, on a grand scale. You've touched on this, but I think one dynamic that you've talked about, uh, and I mean, there's been a lot of cultural conversation about is how tribal politics have become even more so than, you know, it might've been 30 years ago or, or 50 years ago. You know, in part, if you go back, you know, 50 years ago, there's still people thinking that we have a choice between systems, right? And so there's a certain way that that elevates the conversation. Like, do we want to be communist or do we want to be capitalist? And like, I think once communism collapses, there's a certain way in which the, like that it contributes to the fact that we're no longer, we're not choosing among systems. It's just, you know, which kind of 
policy, you know, which regulation should you have, what exact tax rate. Um, but then I think there's an even more profound disintegration where we're not even really thinking about policies, we're thinking about teams. And today it's to the point where every day people will flip flop in their standards. I mean, as we're, as we're talking about this, the president has basically just come out and try to uh, shut down free speech and social media. Um, and conservatives who have been spending the last three or four years portraying themselves as the big defenders of free speech against, you know, the, the woke left now are cheering this. Many of them. Uh, there yeah, been- I don't see that as such a change though, because um, I think that certainly since Trump's election and even a bit before the conservatives have been aggressively anti-free speech. So they portray themselves as anti-free speech as pro-free speech by comparison to the woke left, and there is something really ominous in some of the woke left. There's something really ominous in all of the woke left, but something particularly ominous in the ones that are focused on on shutting down free speech. Um, But this idea is not new um, that, uh, one, the idea of of destroying free speech by posing as an advocate of it goes back at least to the 60s, and it's been around before. I mean, the communists, who were, um, you know, the the, um, the Hollywood Ten and all these people were all anti-free speech, and yet they they posed as though their free speech was being um, destroyed by the um, inquiries into Hollywood. And um, if you look at um, the things I ran with writing about in the '60s, you'll see all kinds of examples of people claiming that um, you know we need to put more controls even than we already have on television stations so as to preserve free speech because those damn television stations will censor you. Um, by, you know, not being politically fair or whatever. So this idea goes back a long way. um, And um, in this kind of posture on free speech that the president's been taking, and the conservatives have been taking it for a long time. There's been all this railing and fulminating against Twitter and Facebook forever, not forever, but for three or four years now. Um, So I think if you go back to like the mid 2000s, there was a case to be made that the conservatives were, uh, some of them, pro-free speech. But I mean, I th- I've for several years now seen Ted Cruz as in the vanguard of anti-free speech in America, along with Elizabeth Warren. I mean, the two of them are probably, um, you know, the most anti-free speech in the Senate, at least in terms of being vocal about it. Yeah, and- Cruz has been on Twitter today uh, going o- above and beyond to defend this move. Yeah, um, they're just doubling down on the free speech hatred that they've had for some time. So there's, there's, I think, so one view could be, well, look, if politics is tribal, then it does no use to kind of appeal to ideas, right? Because people aren't operating by ideas. And uh, I mean, I think by nature, I'm just not that pessimistic. But I also think of like our mutual friend, Alex Epstein has had, really good success of uh, at least opening people to uh, including people who are like call themselves you know died in the wool democrats or liberals or progressives who at least think yeah that actually sounds more reasonable than i thought and he is i think a quintessential example of i putting the focus on ideas and so what is your view of sort of you know when there is a very tribal politics what is the role of appealing to ideas? And like, are you a complete pessimist uh, about the ability of that to succeed? No, I think the only option is to appeal to ideas. Uh, there's no 
there's no hope in you can't beat them, join them. You know, I'll just be a tribalist along with the rest and appeal to personalities. That's the way to kill yourself in politics. Um, because the only ideas can lead to the good, only a conceptual approach. And so the, then the question is, how do you do it? And I'm, I'm a pessimist insofar as I think we're right now culturally on a bad track and things um, are going to get, continue to get worse for a while before they get better, even if the best of us do all the best things. But there are good things that we can do and they can you know, have an effect in the longer term and an effect in the short term on lots of people. So I think the first thing is to sensitize people to who is talking about uh, at the concrete level about facts and is interested in what's true and false. And at the abst more abstract level is interested still in what's true and false, what's real and what's not real, as opposed to uh, interested in this, um, you know, savior or demon figure or that savior or demon figure. And who, when they morally evaluate people, have reasons for their moral evaluations. And what are those reasons, right? So ideas and truth and falsehood, who's oriented towards them and who isn't. And in your own thinking, what's it like to be oriented towards truth and the truth and falsehood, both of particular claims about, you know, did Joe Scarborough uh, do this or that with a you know, employee years ago, and abstract claims like is um, what is free speech and what isn't free speech and what, what, whether it's a value. Um, who's making arguments and who's being tribal and collective and when are you doing each of those? And so first to sensitize people to that difference and help them to see when they're in one mode versus the other and to value the reality focused mode rather than the tribal people focused mode. And so there's doing that and then there's appealing to um, their best elements, um, and in particular, helping them understand what they value and what they're uncomfortable with in conceptual terms um, rather than tribal terms. So if something about Nancy Pelosi really, really puts you off, or something about Donald Trump really, really puts you off, what is it? What's wrong about them? And if you admire something about Elon Musk or about... Um, Mark Zuckerberg, or whomever it might be, you know, what is it that you're admiring? Can you put it in, in conceptual terms and then think about what follows from that for uh, the various controversies that are before you? That's really intriguing. Uh, one of the people I talked to in this podcast was Gina Gorlin, who, as you know, is, you know, she comes from a, psych a psychology background. And a lot of what we talked about was the way in which you're when when you're helping people change you're facilitating their own thinking and self-discovery rather than lecturing them as uh there's an old bob newhart sketch where he plays you know people come to him as a psychologist and say i have this problem and he says stop it and yeah. it's you should look it up everybody because uh, it's oh i've seen a secret i amazing. second the recommendation yeah um and like and, and i think part of what you're getting at is that there's um what you're talking about is I think along the same lines in the realm of ideas, which is you're, you're sort of uh, not even leading, but you're allowing them to work with the material that's kind of in their mind and the premises that are in their mind, the values that they already have, rather than just sort of having kind of like a, a pseudo active communication where, you know, here's what you should think. Um, and, you know, and even that can be done better and worse. There's people who just will shout down somebody with, 
no, you're wrong for one, two, three reasons. But there's another kind of, I think, trying to connect with somebody's premises where it's like, you know, if you value American values and you believe in the founding fathers, you know, they stood for rights and rights say that we need to get rid of social security. So clearly, shouldn't we get rid of social security? Yours seems to be much more um, organic to how a person actually thinks and where they are at a given well, time. I mean, it's hard to do it well. And I, I don't claim, you know, having had tons of tremendous success with it. But I think that is the right approach. And, you know, you asked earlier how people get their political views. And I answered with respect to the majority of people who have wishy-washy kind of, you know, moderate in that they're not, uh, you know, within the mainstream one way or another political views. But if you think about people who are radicalized, they're radicalized to a good cause, to a bad cause, or even they've become radicalized to a cause that's within the mainstream, but they're not, they're, they're someone whose identity is about like, I'm Mr. Conservative or Mr. Democrat right. or whatever, um, rather than just, you know, I vote for this guy and I'm happy about it. Um, it's worth thinking about how movements and the ideologies in movements work. And to my mind, the, the, the book I found most revealing on this, although it's not per se about this, is a book by Majid Nawaz called Radical. And it tells the story of his becoming an Islamist and then coming out of Islamism and becoming a kind of guy who tries to shake people out of their Islamism. Um, and so one, I recommend that book for people who want to think about it and to think about uh, how you can find versions of that same kind of phenomena in other areas of life. But also part of what I took away from that, I don't want to Often, you know, it's hard to tell what you thought of yourself and what you got from a book. Uh, but in my reflection on it, what I started thinking more and more is there's a way you can think of political movements where it's sort of top down all about the ideology. There's some philosophical principle, and that's what this movement is about. And then the principle is good or bad or right or wrong, and all the people are there because they're committed to that principle. Um, there's another way you can think about it where it's People have particular concerns, usually grievances. You know, my taxes are too high. I, I, I got thrown out of work. Uh, the boss was, you know, whatever it is. Um, the cops in my town are, or I think they are racist. So, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but there's some particular concern, often usually a legitimate concern, at least, you know, to some extent legitimate. Um, and you think people are really animated politically by those kind of concerns. And then all the ideology is, you know, or, or person, everything else is hot air that kind of helps to, to organize them or whatever. And I think both of those kind of views are wrong. But both of them identify an aspect that's present in a political movement. So I think a political movement is people who have some kind of concrete concerns relative, relevant to their own life. Something's going wrong or right for, wrong for them that they want to, attack, you know, fix, or going right for them that their concerned is in jeopardy, so they're trying to defend it um, at a concrete level. And then there are abstract ideas that they are understanding it in terms of. And that gives them a kind of frame to understand, like, why this thing is going wrong or right, what would fix it. And those ideas could be uh, false, even if the concerns are legitimate. Um, and then what happens is they color and organize the way you relate to the original concerns you had and to one another within the movement and what other concerns, you know, become prevalent for you and which don't. And 
so I think when I want to think about politics, about like what's driving the, the, that whole complex, I don't want to think this person's really concerned about the concrete issues and not about the abstraction. So all I have to do is show him what other abstractions or other cause or whatever will help him fix his concrete issues. Or he's just concerned about the abstractions and he, the concrete issues don't matter. You're gonna think he had these concretes, he had some motivation in terms of them. That motivation got conceptualized in terms of the, the, these principles. He's now understanding history and what's happening to him and what's likely to happen and what he can do all through that ideological framework. And, um, and uh, is that ideological framework right or wrong? And then once you understand that kind of complex, you can then try to tease apart what things are valid and what things are invalid in the person's thinking and try to find points of entry to, to argue with him. Um, so that's what I think is going on for people who are actually ideological. Uh, and then when you have people who are these more tribal team player type people, um, you want to think to what extent is there some version of that going on? Uh, and in that sense, you could engage with them around that. If it's just tribal, I think the first thing you have to do is sensitize them to, you know, do you want to be a guy who just goes for your team right or wrong, or do you care what's true? And uh, once you get them reactivated to it, the caring about what's true part of it, then, um, then you can try this other, you know, what started you out here? What got you so concerned about immigration, for example, or uh, so concerned about um, guns or, uh, or about... Um, uh, about um, racial injustice or, you know, whatever the, the issue, the climate that they see essential as. Yeah, I, I mean, it's funny that that came up for you in the context of reading uh, that book, because I remember I first became aware, although I wouldn't have, I didn't fully understand it, but I became aware of exactly that false alternative you mentioned when after 9-11, because I felt I was already interested in objectivism and I felt the need to be able to prove like, no, these people were motivated by an ideology. And then the, the people arguing against me was no, it was America, like, you know, was dropping bombs on their cities. And, uh, and there's this kind of real battle and tug. And I knew, I thought there was something really wrong with what they were saying, but I had that sense internally of, yeah, what I'm saying is not quite, right either at least it's not i can't make it psychologically real to me um it felt like it was like an ideology in a vacuum cut off from integrating with any of a person's real life experience any of a person's uh you know reading of the daily news it was just like a principle in a vacuum and i think it's because at that age uh i held a lot of my principles in a vacuum um mm -hmm. i'm overstating it a bit but i had that i had that inclination uh in part because i got principles so young and didn't have any uh didn't have a lot of real world evidence and experience you know which they were embedded in and it took a long time to get that there's this a way of looking at the world which you capture in an ideology but it's looking at the world and so you're seeing the world and you're seeing real things in the world and that's why you know when one of the things that i teach people who are in, interested in debating is they often have this view of like i'm going to come up with you know, the answer that the other side can't answer. And I said, you know, beyond like a college student, that doesn't exist because there's always a way of looking at the world and tying it to your, your ideology. Um, in, in the end, they're not going to be consistent and won't be convincing, but it's not like they won't have anything to say, uh, you know, if you keep pushing them. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, I think that's helpful. I wonder 
I mean, so you've taught for many years. Uh, and I've always been jealous of people that I know who teach because you get a lot of time to see how people respond to ideas, how they respond to your questions, to your follow-up answers. Many years ago, one of the things you told me, and feel free to retract this or correct it, but you know, people think that when they have an answer to you know, your argument, you know, you've, your opponent's argument, you've got them but it's when you know what their answer to your answer will be. That's when you've got them. And I took that to mean you understand how they think and therefore you can actually engage with them in a way that's effective. And I wonder, what are, what are some of the lessons you've learned that are relevant to you know, this whole question of how do we help people rethink their political views from having those kinds of ongoing interactions with students? Well, I think part of what's important with students is you shouldn't be trying to persuade your students primarily of something. I don't think that if, if that's what you're doing, then you're not a teacher, you're a advocate and the students are, you know, an audience you're trying to advocate for. And that's a fine posture to take. And sometimes I'm giving an argumentative talk and that's what I'm doing. But if I'm teaching, I, I think of it as these people are here to learn from me. They have some kind of value, th thing they value that they think they can get by studying with me. And what is it? Right? Even if it's they signed up to this college and this college put them in a philosophy class or so, something um, as you know a requirement, still there's some context there of like, why are they here for me? What's the value that we share, even if we disagree? And that I shared with some of my teachers who I disagreed with, right? And then how can I provide that service to them in the way that's honest and has integrity, both to what my job here is and to what my own convictions are. So I'll say, you know, I have strong opinions on these things, but the goal isn't for me to convince you of them. And I will, you know, have them read things I agree with, as well as things I disagree with, you know, depending on the, the, the course it, you know, um, if, if the course is all on Plato and I disagree with, you know, the main book we're reading, then they won't read anything I agree with. But, um, well, the, I mean, I'm glad you clarified that, but I guess what I'm really asking is not so much what you learned about persuasion, but what did you, what, what have you learned about the way that people in, you know, 21st century America tend to process ideas and take in kind of abstract arguments? Have, have you learned anything about that you wouldn't have expected being able to like, actually because my experience is a writer and as a writer you send stuff out into the ether and maybe you hear back an argument or something or you get one question to q a but you don't get that ongoing dialogue so it's yeah, hard to so really get one thing that. it's a little hard to say in a way that doesn't sound insulting to people and i certainly don't want to be insulting to my students who i think are mostly good but if you i'm adding my university students here um but if you're somebody who's a professional thinker and writer um, and you're used to reading complex arguments and back and forth and, uh, and so forth, you usually operate at a level of resolution in your thinking that's a lot higher than I think most people are operating at. So, you know, most people will read an article and they'll come away with, until they work at it, and part of what you have to do in teaching is teach them how to work at it or how to be more sensitive to it. You know, yeah, this guy's like, you know, anti-lockdown or anti-Trump or uh, pro-police um, uh, or, uh, you know, whatever it is, some kind of like, He's on this side. This is a, some kind of very fuzzy, you know, Rand likes capitalism or whatever. 
um, which is true, but it's not, uh, in that case, right? But it's not a kind of, there were six claims made here. Um, this one was a version of that. They'll see, they won't distinguish between claims that are, that are vaguely related. So, you know, so there's a kind of, what's the thesis of this article? What arguments are there for it? Which one, you know, when this claim comes up again, is it just repeated or is it slightly modified because he's now uh, incorporated something from this objection to, to, to make it more nuanced or whatever. There's that level of resolution which doesn't come to people automatically. And uh, if you're the kind of person who's going to teach or going to write, you know, maybe it doesn't come to you automatically either, but you probably have a lot more of it more automatized than your audience does. And so getting a sense of how someone will read something, uh, at least at first, and then what can help them to get a little bit, um, get a little bit more resolution on it, I think is, is something you get a, a sense of from dealing with students. And what I try to do is expose them to different arguments, different pieces on different sides of issues or different philosophical texts. And my, what I'm pushing them on is like, get clarity on what's being said here and why. And mm -hmm. then you can judge which one's true. Well, speaking of reading, I definitely didn't want to let this conversation go by without raising, uh, I'm sure an issue we could talk about forever. Um, but you've, you've given a lot of talks and lectures and written a lot on Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. And I think there's something really astonishing, there's many things really astonishing about the novel, but just relevant here is the fact that the, the scale in which that book has changed minds um, is really hard to fathom. Now, I think most people who read it, even who like it, they don't come away with anything like this. But even if we're talking about thousands or, you know, tens of thousands of people who've, you know, changed their views on the most fundamental issues in life, whether it's religion or morality or politics, I mean, that is a huge achievement for a single book. And, and, uh, you know, very few people have anything like that impact. And I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, what is it, wh what is the book doing that is able to even make something like that possible? I mean, because at one level, it's just, well, here's a story about some characters who underwent a journey. And war I'm just, I don't know what you're going to say, but I'm just going to say spoil alert. So, you know, anybody who doesn't want to listen doesn't have to, because I want us to be able to discuss this. Because uh, I think there's just so many lessons I've learned from the book, but I think it's hard to even get it. What is it about the story of these characters undergoing this journey that even makes possible uh, uh, such so a profound change? Before we even get into what it is about the story that makes it possible, one thing that's worth noticing is it has a big impact on people who don't understand why it had that impact on them. And who, um, here's a common thing that happens, right? Somebody reads Atlas Shrugged, they come out of it much more pro-business than they went into it, or much more pro-capitalism than they went into it. Then they go into a university program and they think, well, I'm going to now start arguing for capitalism or arguing for business. And they start thinking about how to do it. And they don't think to do it in the way that the novel did. And they don't think like, well, what actually convinced me? They think, well, let me find some argument from Hayek or something, maybe that'll help. And not that there aren't some good arguments in Hayek, but it's a, a different approach. If you look at the, the libertarian movement, basically, you know, a very large part of it are people who got inspired to be pro-liberty by Ayn Rand, um, but didn't really learn to think from her. And um, then uh, tried to, 
find arguments in much more conventional uh, sources to buttress their claims. And I think it, it shows and often what they end up defending isn't actually, uh, actually real liberty. Um, so how does the novel actually work? Well, the novel is powerful because it shows admirable people, people that without knowing too much about them, without understanding too much, you can grasp as admirable and who are pursuing values and it shows the challenges they face and the struggles they have achieving those values. And that you get like from the first third of the novel in a way. Um, but then, and this is where the high resolution thinking point comes in versus low resolution thinking. A lot of people find Atlas Shrugged repetitive and it's not, there's not a repetitive sentence in the novel or uh, that's a little bit maybe <laughs> hyperbole. I can't go sentence by sentence, but you know, it's not a repetitive novel. Um, what it does is like an argument returns to the same points time and time again, but doing something different with them. Now I've reached this point as a conclusion. Now I'm using it as a premise and a further argument. That's what you do in an argument. In, in Atlas, what happens is you have the characters coming to reflect more and more deeply on their own motivations and on the differences between them similarities and differences. What is it that's bad about the bad guys and good about the good guys? I get Jim Taggart's a kind of scummy guy from the beginning and Daphne Taggart's really admirable. And we can say at kind of a, a vague level what those things are, but you get all of these characters coming to understand as the novel progresses more and more what it is that drives them. And then acting differently based on their newer and deeper understanding of what it is that drives them. And then coming to get deeper level reflections as a result of having done that. And this process iterates until you get to some really deep truths about do people value their lives and um, is A in fact A and so forth. Um, or rather, do people recognize what it is? Um, so that's how the novel works structurally. But it, it has the power it does because you get to see people who are driven by values and ideas really deep down in their psychology, um, acting on them and acting on them more and more consistently as time goes on. And that gives a sense of excitement and intellectual drama to it. Um, and it's what makes, I think, the conclusions in it so compelling when you're reading it, whether or not you identify that that's why they feel so compelling. And then if you do identify it, you actually find arguments. Um, arguments not just in the speeches, but in you, you, you know, how to think inductively, in effect, from observations of people like these characters, imperfectly like them maybe, but you know, more or less like them in the world, to the kind of principles that are supported in the book. Um, and I've written a bit about this. I have a, um, an essay called, um, oh, it's got too long and, and cumbersome a title. Um, but uh, it's my second essay in the book, um, Robert Mayhew edited Essays on Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Oh, it's called um, Discovering Atlantis, I think. Right. But then it has a long, complex subtitle uh, where I, I talk about how it works in the book. And there's also for people who want to follow Atlas really closely, Ben Bayer and I did a whole podcast where we uh, read through the book chapter by chapter. And yeah, I was, was just going to recommend that in part because I think it, going back to this point about um, how helpful it is to ask people about their own reactions to things, I think a lot of what you guys do, and it's hard because it's, you know, you're trying to move the course forward and explain things, but I think you do a good job of, um, you know, asking, like eliciting from the reader, like, okay, raising questions of, well, how do we understand why this character would act this way? And why did they say this? And, 
um, it's in effect that same helping the reader think through what they've experienced in the novel rather than just kind of telling them, you know, in a way that you have to do in an essay, like here's how we can understand uh, yeah. the book. I've taught, I've taught Atlas in university classes and it's been especially fun to do it there because you have a wider range of, uh, of students coming at it with different places. The Atlas project, you know, we'd hoped it would be a lot of people who hadn't read it before, but most of the people had. It was still a lot of fun and I recommend it. The Atlas Project is the name of the podcast. But one thing I noticed when teaching it in university is people would read it through what they assumed it would be saying. So if I'd ask a question like, you know, what's going on with Jim Taggart in this scene? Why is he so mad at his sister or whatever? I get answers like, well, he's a socialist and she's a capitalist. He doesn't say anything about socialism or anything socialist sounding in this scene. So, you know, let's actually look at the book and see what's going on. It turns out he, his politics is, you know, too socialistic, but that's not what's going on right here, right? So uh, what is it? How can we tell? And that's a skill you have to bring to reading anything. And it takes, you know, what's actually there versus what you're expecting to find there. It's such an interesting phenomenon. I mean, my sense is that a lot of it is, you know, we need, like, going back to the point of, like, you really feel this need as a human being who's operating in a very complex world to be able to like understand things and there's can be this tendency or desire to leap to kind of a pseudo understanding where you can say, okay, I've got this, I can move on to the next thing. So like, why is this guy acting the way he is? Oh, socialist. Like, and you, you, you have these the shortcuts. Box. Yeah. And you know, it's kind of like trying to clean your, your, your room really fast before your parents get home. You're not putting things in the proper boxes and you're mixing, you know, your shoes with your underwear and it's, it becomes just this whole disaster and getting people to value, let's carefully put things into like very defined, you know, what's the, um, who's the person who became famous for that show of, uh, you know, clean tidying up. You know, Mary uh, Kondo or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah part of it is, is, conceptualizing versus pigeonholing. You, know, you have some number of boxes already. I see you've got the compartment with the boxes behind you on the, on the shelf. Um, you have some number of boxes already, concepts, categories you already have in your head. And do you go through the world keeping that set, I got six concepts fixed, and then try to uh, shove everything into one of those, like the guy who has a hammer and to him everything's a nail, or you have a hammer and a screwdriver, so everything can either be a nail or a screw, and which one is it? But maybe it's neither of those two things. Um, so that do you go through anxious to sort something into a category you have? Or do you look at the world fresh and say, what's going on here? How can I best understand it? What's it like? What's it unlike? Does it turn out that I have a category already of things like this that this slots into? All right, I'll put it there. But very often, I won't. Or I will, but it only sort of apply. Like it's kind of like socialism, but not quite because it's got this other thing and then you have to come up with a new category or subdivision. Um, so are you kind of anxiously trying to sort things before your parents get home, so to speak, into the couple of boxes you've got because otherwise you feel you won't have a handle on it and you need to, everything needs to be neat or tight and tidy. Or are you looking at the world and trying to figure things out? 
uh, including by coming up with new categories if you need them and including being comfortable with sitting with some confusion or uncertainty about something. You know, there's something weird about what he's doing. It's not quite this and it's not quite that. And I don't know. And your response isn't, well, I got to find out right now or else I can't go on with myself. It's, you know, yeah, life's full of things like this. You can't quite put your finger on and you note that. And later on you come back to it. And um, I think of that later thing as what conceptualizing is about rather than pigeonholing. And pigeonholing is not good. It doesn't lead to clarity uh, about things. At least well, I, I notice that in myself the most when I study other thinkers. Um, one of the things, and uh, our mutual friend Ankar Gatte was really helpful in at least alerting me to this issue and giving me some tools for getting out of it. But I still find it very challenging. Uh, you know, when you're reading a really powerful thinker like Hume or... Uh, certainly philosophers, but not just philosophers, and they have their, their categories, the way that they're boxing things up. And I felt like the tendency, you know, to like, how do I squeeze this into an objectivist concept or objectivist category? Or I would just find myself going, that's an illegitimate category, but then I wouldn't be able to understand what he saw himself as trying to do and not really understand his framework. And as I've slowly been able to get more comfortable with being able to kind of create this, you know, file folder of, you know, uh, Rawls's or, or Hume's uh, framework for looking at things, um, it, make, it, it actually helps me get better with my own categories, but it certainly is helpful in understanding them. But I, I find that super, super challenging to do. It is really hard. And I found it hard as a philosophy student because I was studying objectivism at the same time I was studying other philosophies that might have made it a little easier for me, but the, um, but I'm not talking to say there weren't times where I jumped to conclusions and pigeonhole things. I'm sure that I'm there where I can remember uh, early papers I wrote for college lessons. But the, the thing one has to have an idea of is there's this quote that's attributed to Aristotle. He, he didn't say it, but it's attributed to him all over the internet. Uh, the mark of an educated mind is being able to entertain a thought without believing it. Like it takes work to like hold the thought in mind, say, I don't know if this is true. I don't believe it, but I'm, I'm not arguing for it or against it yet. I'm just thinking about it and then thinking about what evidence there might be on both sides. So that's true. That's something you need to do and it takes work to do it, not to just accept it or react against it, but just, you know, think about it, entertain it as a theory. Um, but it's not just claims you need to be able to do that with to think clearly and critically. You need to be able to do it with concepts, categories, you know, uh, extremism or fake news or um, uh, Trump derangement syndrome or um, I don't know what, these are all I think invalid concepts by the way, the ones I just listed, um, or uh, globalist, right? Um, uh, all I think invalid concepts. You need to be able to do it with the concepts, but also I think you need to be able to do it with narratives. So, um, or what's called narratives these days, this mm -hmm. kind of large scale, you know, America has a rape culture or um, what the 1619 Project is giving you a different way of conceptualizing US history where it's all about slavery and the interactions between slaves and white people versus the traditional way of conceptualizing American history versus the Marxist way of conceptualizing American history versus, you know, some other way I might not know. Um, uh, all of these kind of stories that um, 
try to give you a big picture on what's happening in the world or what happened historically where you don't fact check it, you know, item by item. Did this guy really do this in this year? But what's claimed is like, yeah, all these things happened or most of them, but which of them are important? Which of them are indicative of the trend? Um, to be able to hold different accounts of that in mind, different accounts of world history, American history, of what the state of the culture is, and um, have them individuated. Here's one account of American history. Here's another account of American history. And then think, okay, which one is true? or none of them are true, or several of them have bits of the truth and you can work out a new one that's you know, fully true from them. But um, to think of them the way you think of claims as things that can be true or false, that require evidence, think about what kind of evidence there is for them and how to evaluate it. And that's a real skill, um, but even more than the skill of doing it, it takes, it's not obvious that, that there's a thing there to be done about, uh, it's more obvious with a particular claim is this thing true or false as a fact? But it's less obvious with concepts and less obvious with orientations, you know, like the Marxist way of looking at history versus the Whiggish way of looking at history versus the way Ayn Rand looks at history. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad we got into this. This is because this was the last issue I wanted to cover. So I have this general view that, you know, there's a lot that we can learn about persuasion, but persuasion is only valuable. And in the end, I think only possible on any significant scale, if you have internal clarity about things and that, and I mean, the best persuaders I know are people who share what persuaded them and have very high standards for what persuades them. And, you know, some of my favorite things that you've done, or I mean, anybody has done is you've given lectures on, on, I mean, in philosophy, epistemology, like how, how to think, but really aimed at more kind of practical things that people can do versus a focus on the theoretical structure of, you know, how good thinking operates. And I, I wonder if something like, so we've talked about legitimate concepts versus invalid concepts. And I don't know if we use the word here, but package deals, these concepts that seem to make sense, but they're putting together things that are different in, a, in an important way. Um, to what extent do you think somebody who is, um, you know, hasn't studied Ayn Rand, let's say, can learn just that as a, as, a, um, as a method of going through life about how to think better about the words they accept or not versus how much do they have to have some sense of uh, what concepts are and, and how they should be formed? Um, I certainly don't think you need to have read Ayn Rand to do it. I mean, others of us could write things about it that she, she addresses this in the context so, so first of all, there, she has a book, um, uh, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, which gives you her theory of concepts. But it doesn't really, and that's the kind of deepest thing she wrote on this, right? Uh, but that doesn't really include very much on invalid concepts or package deals. And the stuff she wrote about that, uh, invalid concepts and package deals, and that I learned the most from about how to think of them, and I think most people who've learned from her, isn't from the really deeply theoretical material, which doesn't even talk about package deals much. It's from articles like Extremism, the Art of Smearing, uh, and Credibility and Polarization, articles that tried to uh, um, get to the bottom of and diffuse, so to speak, one or another um, invalid concept. And I think you can teach that skill um, without teaching a whole theory of concepts. She certainly taught it that way. And I, I recommend those essays, Extremism, The Art of Smearing in particular for this. And I think we can come up with more resources to help explain these things to people in the context of working through particular concepts. 
uh, to get a certain level of sophistication in it, you need to understand a bit more about how to evaluate concepts in general and what the role of concepts is. But I think before that, you can get the idea of there can be words that put things together in ways that don't make sense and words that put things together in ways that do make sense. And there are um, assumptions built into the words we use. I think a lot of people have gotten that idea from one place or another, whether, you know, and not necessarily from my ranch. He's not the only one who's had that insight. Uh, and getting that insight from wherever you get it is really valuable. And then we have to start thinking about, well, how can you tell what are the right standards? And I think there's a lot from Rand that's valuable in answering that question. But there's not a great guide to that. There's not a great book on how to do it. Um, Rand didn't write one, um, no other objectives. I've tried to say it in some courses, but I think it's something to, to there's a lot to be written on in the future. Yeah, I mean, because if I think about like the, you know, to the extent that there's kind of persuasion or not persuasion, but there's thinking superpowers, like things that like you can acquire and, and work on acquiring skills that you can work on acquiring, like that attention to the concepts you accept. It's just the, the benefits you get versus like how hard it is to learn to at least start the journey of thinking about what words I'm using and where did I get them from? And do they make sense? It's just such a huge payoff that like, I would really, I really like to encourage people to do more of that because you know that you get enormous benefits and it's way easier than something like inducing a new principle uh, uh, or you know the the kind of frontiers of you know what we can learn through the best thinking methods one i mean easy way to get started is just to start attending to where you're hearing and how you're picking up new words and do you fully understand them or not and trying not to have words in your head be in your own voice when you got them from someone else, at least for a while. So if you, you know, listen to Ben Shapiro a lot and he uses a certain phrase or whatever, have it, you know, sound like Ben Shapiro's voice in your head. And if Rachel Maddow uses another one, have it sound like Rachel Maddow in your head. Like this is what she would call such and such. This is what he would call such and such. Um, not what I would call it necessarily. I'm not saying they're wrong. I just, if the word is coming to you from someone else, label that for yourself and then try to figure out at some point, like why this word? Why are they using this? What are they grouping together? Like if Trump says fake news a lot, what does he mean by fake news? If prior to Trump, other people were saying fake news a lot, what did they mean by fake news? Are they the same thing? Are they different? Is, is one or the other of these a useful informative concept? Both of them are, neither of them. Um, but just not to there's a lot of emperor's new closism in thinking, you know, you, you um, like the story of the emperor's new clothes, you, it, it, it seems sophisticated to use the jargon the big boys are using or whatever. And so you kind of pick it up and you start saying, you know, that's an anti-concept or if you've heard us use that term or that's fake news or that's um, an order of magnitude different. Maybe you don't even know this isn't an ideological. Maybe, maybe you just mean it's bigger when you say an order of magnitude or maybe you know what that means. But notice when you're doing that and kind of fight that tendency to just get enculturated into the new words. Let new words you learn, they have to earn their keep before you can use them in your own voice. And what earning their keep means is they help you understand something you couldn't understand without them. All right, well, hopefully everybody's understanding is now an order of magnitude better uh, on these issues. Well, no, this is really fun, Greg. Uh, hopefully we can talk again at some point, but I appreciate uh, the conversation. Thanks, always great talking with you.